So we transition now, and we're going to move into Sodom and Gomorrah. So let's buckle up. Um, then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely uh, become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So we see something. Where did this dialogue come from? Who's God talking to? He's talking to himself. We get to see into the thoughts of God here. He's saying, should I let Abraham know what's about to happen? You know, he considers Abraham intimate enough with him as a friend that he's going to give him an opportunity to intercede for Sodom and Gomorrah, which is just amazing. We see God's heart here. He's not talking to Abraham. Otherwise, why would he say, shall I hide from Abraham? Who is he asking? Abraham, shall I hide from Abraham? Who, me? Yeah, you. No, it's an internal dialogue that God is having with himself. This is crazy. It's like, let us make man in our likeness. He's the only being, you know? He's the only existent thing. How is he, who is he talking to? He's talking within himself. I think that's so cool. Um, And in verse 20, then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. So Abraham is literally interceding. He's standing in the way of God, which, you know, tread lightly. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So now Abraham knows exactly who he's dealing with. He says, far be it. This is not who you are, God. This is not who you've revealed yourself to be to me. He intercedes on behalf of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Even though they're wicked, we saw all, all the way back in chapter 13, that they were wicked at that point, too. He's pleading his case based on what he knows of God's character. This exchange that he has here, coupled with the response of the angels, as we'll see in chapter 19, gives great comfort to us as believers, because God will not judge the righteous along with the wicked. Instead, God will spare the wicked for the sake of any remaining righteous influence in the hopes that the wicked will turn to God. And I think sometimes people get flippant and they're like, oh man, you know, there's a famous quote and I'm not deriding it or anything about if God doesn't judge America, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. Well, as we'll see, there weren't even 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. How many people? We got more than 10 here. God's called us to be a righteous influence, to be a city on a hill like we sang earlier, to, to, to raise up a covenant course, to raise up Christ's name on high. And it's because of that, because of that testimony of the saints that God has blessed and God is allowing America to exist to this day. So we have to be careful. It's comforting, though, because everybody gets like, oh, no, God's going to judge America. And Yeah, there's things that are happening, but I think they're a consequence of sin. I think they're a consequence of people rejecting God and doing what they want. I don't think God is judging America yet. Maybe there will come a day, and maybe it's when he raptures the Christians and takes them up to glory, and then... As we'll see in Sodom and Gomorrah, there's a great picture of that. Um, So, in verse 27, 
Abraham answered and said, and he's going to go through this whole dialogue, and I'll just kind of sum it up for you. He's going to work God down to 10, okay? It's like, okay, so you said 50. What about 45? Okay, 45. What about 40? 35, 30, 35. You know, he's working himself down. Abraham's a good businessman. We saw that earlier when he had the agreement with the kings and stuff. And he says, will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? Maybe if there's 45 there. And God said, yep, I'll do it. You know, if there's 45 there, I'll spare them. Um, and then I'm, I'm just going to kind of skip down if you guys don't mind. And he goes down to 20. Maybe if there's 20. And, and he's like, the whole time I can see, like, he's like, yeah, if there's 40, I'll spare them. He starts walking. Abraham goes, uh, what if there's 35? And then God keeps walking. He's like, well, what do you, you know, like, you got to see it. Because if you don't, then you, you, it's just text. It's just Bible. And you don't pay attention to it. You have to put yourself in this scenario. But Abraham is like, he knows Lot's there. His kinsman, the one he went to rescue with 318 guys against nine nations to rescue him out. He loves Lot. And he gets down to the, he says, Lord, don't be angry. In verse 32, I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. Isn't that comforting? For the sake of ten. There's 20-something here, 30. He answered, for the sake of ten. And the Lord said, uh, the Lord went his way when he finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. So, chapter 19. We see Sodom and Gomorrah. It's really interesting. I, I like to look up things on Wikipedia just to see like what the, the average person believes about it. Uh, this is what I found. The historicity of Sodom and Gomorrah is still in dispute by archaeologists, as little archaeological evidence has ever been found in the regions where they were supposedly situated. Hmm. There are some other stories and historical names which bear a resemblance to the biblical stories of Sodom and Gomorrah, and some possible natural explanations for the events described have been proposed, but no widely accepted or strongly verified sites for the cities have been found. Wow. Really? You think so? It's because God judged it. <laughs> God's not going to leave remnants. You know what I mean? I just think it's really funny that they're like, hmm, these scientists and archaeologists, we can't find it. Yeah, it's because God destroyed it and it's gone. It's gone. There's no remnant left. So I just I think that's kind of humorous. What's interesting, though, there's a lot of Jewish tradition about Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, and I'll just kind of briefly, some of them are humorous. I think this one's really funny. There's a, there's a Jewish tradition about Sodom and Gomorrah and why this outcry that God talks about, that there's an outcry about how wicked this city is. There's an incident where Eleazar, Abraham's servant, if we, you remember him, he went to visit Lot in Sodom. He's like, oh, I'll go see Lot, see how, what he's up to. He gets in a dispute with a Sodomite over a beggar. Maybe Eleazar was trying to help the beggar, and the Sodomite's like, no, don't. And was hit in the forehead with a stone. So the Sodomite's like, throws a, hits Eleazar in the head with a stone, making him bleed. The Sodomite demanded Eleazar pay him for the service of bloodletting. He's like, hey, look, bloodletting, you owe me money. Even though he's the one who threw the rock. It gets better. A Sodomite judge sided with the Sodomite, surprisingly. They're corrupt. Eleazar then struck the judge in the forehead with a stone and asked the judge to pay the Sodomite. So I just, this is actual Jewish tradition. He's like, Oh, you want me to pay the sodomite? Here, boom. Now you pay him. You're bleeding too. It's hilarious, right? I don't know if that's true, but I just had to lighten it up a little bit because it's so heavy. Um, there are some other traditions that are even that are horrific. About um, there's one about Lot's daughter actually, and it says that they uh, they killed one of his daughters. That's not mentioned in scripture uh, because she gave bread to a poor man. 
who had entered the city. And then the townspeople, they burned the one and smeared the other girl's body with honey and hung her from the city wall until she was eaten of bees. It is this gruesome event and her scream in particular, the Talmud concludes, that are alluded to in the verse that heralds the city's destruction. So said, because the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah has become great and because their sin has been very grave, I will descend and see. So it's tradition. I don't know. It's not scriptural or whatever. But you can see that this is the reputation of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, not including their rampant homosexuality, which we'll talk about in a second. But uh, the Bible is very clear that Sodom and Gomorrah was a wicked, wicked place. So we can see, as we move on, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Didn't they just eat? This is great. He's making a feast for him. This is awesome. Let's look at Lot for a second. We don't know much about him. We've, so far what we've seen, it seems kind of like a, a guy who likes stuff. Uh, he's done very well for himself. Sitting in the gate where it says he is was the place of an elder in that time period, that, that, uh, that, that uh, society, if, if you want to call it that. Um, the leaders would gather in the city gate to make decisions. They would also be responsible for deciding which visitors to allow into the city gates. Um, you know, we see that uh, he's essentially like the mayor. Lot's become the mayor of Sodom, which is interesting uh, because it seems like there's been an unhealthy progression in his life. If you put up the verse in Genesis 13, uh, Genesis 13, 10 to 12. Uh, did it go to sleep? Because I didn't use it in a while. Anyway, Genesis 13, 10, listen to this. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plan of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. So he pinched his tent towards Sodom. Then in Genesis fourteen twelve, when Lot is captured, it says, They also took Lot, Abram's brother, his brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods and departed. So in four, chapter 14, now he's living in Sodom. And now we see he's sitting in the gate of Sodom. He is now running the town or involved in the, the everyday decision-making for this town. So you're like, Lot, what are, you, what are you doing? You know what's going on here. You know what this town is like. Even when he picked the verse following where it says he pitched his tent toward Sodom, it says, and Sodom was wicked. So it's not like people didn't know. And, oh, I had no idea this was going on here. It was widely known. They didn't hide it. So let's move on in verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old. And now things are going to get kind of crazy. Just picture a zombie movie, if you will, because this is what it's like. Um, Young and old, all the men to the last man surrounded the house and they called the lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Which is a nice Bible word of saying we want to rape them. So... We're all adults here, right? Except for Emma. Uh, (laughs) Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. This is our great Lot. He's he's great, man. What a good guy. Uh, um, 
some people try to say, like, oh, they just wanted to know who they were. It wasn't about the fact that they were homosexuals and stuff, and we'll talk about it in a second, but then why does he say, here are my daughters, do with them as you please? So that argument breaks down. So if anybody tries to give you that argument, that's not true. Uh, Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn. So notice, they're talking about Lot now. He came to sojourn. He was just traveling by. And he has become the judge. So Lot has a position of a judge. He's making decisions. And they're like, who's this guy think he is? He doesn't even, he wasn't born here. He's not West Philadelphia born and raised. What, you know, like he's, they're like, this guy, who does he think he is? Um, and, uh, where did I leave off? Sorry. Um, now we will deal worse with you than with him or with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. What for? Why? This is crazy. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Being struck blind didn't stop them. Is that scary or what? It's like a zombie movie, right? They're just like, they're trying to get to these guys and to do whatever they want to them. They're struck blind supernaturally. And it says they got tired because they couldn't find the door anymore. So they didn't go, oh, I'm blind. Somebody help me. I need to go get help. They continued their pursuit. That's sick, man. What's interesting is that sin can do that to us. It blinds us. We don't even see how dissatisfying it is. We just keep going for more and more, hoping that the next thing will satisfy us. And it's true of these guys. It's sad. It's really sad. But what's interesting is, in Ezekiel 16, verse 49, are you guys okay? I know it's kind of been long, but are you sticking here? I, you know, I want to get through chapter 19 so Chris doesn't have to do that. Um, thank you, guys. I appreciate that. I'm glad you are. You're tracking with me. Uh, Ezekiel 16:49 says, Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She, had, she and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And we saw the thing in the traditions about the poor man, and there's you know, the recurring thing about the poor man and the beggar and stuff. So the reputation of Sodom and Gomorrah, which we have kind of gone and said, you know, they were homosexual, and God was like, I hate them, and I'm going to kill them, which is what the church has taught for a long time. It wasn't, doesn't appear anyway that God judged Sodom and Gomorrah strictly because they were homosexuals. Rather, their rampant homosexuality was merely the outward reflection of their attitude toward God and the end result of many years where they allowed the lusts of their hearts to go unchecked and chose to willfully disobey God's divine order. So the sin of Sodom, it starts with pride, just like all sin does. Would you guys consider yourself prideful? No one would ever say they were. But as Chris always says, if you have low self-esteem, it's the, the other side of the coin of pride because it's still all about you. That's scary, right? It's the, it comes from the same heart where it's like, I'm not getting what I deserve or need. It's, it's a me-centered focus. And I'm there all the time. I'm like, oh, this isn't working out for me. It's pride. And I have to check it. Fullness of food. Look at America. We have shows about guys who eat food for a living. And not just... Normal portions. Talking about man versus food. That was like one of my favorite shows ever. And I'm like, he's going to do it. Oh no, he's vomiting. Oh, this is great. Rome, I was talking to somebody and 
the Romans, they were gluttonous. It said that they actually, they have vomitorium or something. I forget what it's called. Vomitoriums or something where they would just eat and eat and eat. They had a specific place where they could then vomit so they could eat some more. That's crazy. This is Sodom and Gomorrah we're talking about. This is, interesting enough, how much emphasis do we put on food? It's one thing that the church doesn't really preach against, if you notice. You never hear a message about gluttony because it hits too close to home because we all love food. There's nothing wrong with feasting. There's nothing wrong with what Jesus has said. You know, but you see Sodom and Gomorrah, you're like, wait, I thought it was because they were so crazy that God judged them. I can find myself in a lot of these things. An abundance of idleness. Spare time. What do they say? Idle hands is the devil's handiwork, right? That's why. The homosexuality was just a, an outflow of what was happening inside their heart. Could have been murder. Could have been uh, greed. It's all an outflow of a pride and an arrogance that says, I'm better than God. I'm going to get what I want. So we have to be careful when we start to look at sins and define sins as though they are better or worse because it all stems from pride. It all stems from Lucifer who was prideful and said, I'm going to be like God. All sin is us saying, I'm going to be God instead. I'm going to put myself on the throne. So I have friends you know, or people that I know that I'm familiar with, I'm acquaintances with. I've, I like to do theater, some of you know. You know. I meet a lot of homosexuals. Do I run and hide from them? Because they're like, oh, Genesis 19. No. <laughs> Come on, right? But what a, what a ministry, what an opportunity for us to minister to people that God loves. People that are no more sinful than I am. Did you hear what I said? They're no more sinful than I am. Same blood washes me that can wash them if they choose to believe in Jesus. The church has done in my opinion, has not done enough to reach the homosexual community. Not condoning what they do. And people will argue about it. Like Christians will say, no, it's okay. It's okay now because my beliefs have changed. They've evolved with the culture. No. The Bible's the word of God. The Bible teaches what God's view of homosexuality is. And the arguments in the church oftentimes are happening on the wrong level, to be honest with you. It's like, but God said Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And we get flippant with it, right? And we say, but, but if they get married, it ruins it for us heterosexuals. You know, like people say stupid stuff like that. And sorry, I'm going to start getting a little fiery here because it's close to home. People get so angry about it. And they're arguing on this like low, stupid level. And people poke holes in the arguments. And then it's like, well, because God said so. That's why. And then they run away. And the homosexual person or whoever is like, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that God doesn't love me then? Because God made me this way. So what's the answer there? What do, we do? what do we do when we encounter this? Because we're here, and this is an opportunity to talk about this. I think it's very important. God created man in his image and likeness. Okay, I'm going to get a little theological with you. This is something I feel like God was... Um, <laughs> he had to teach me, and hopefully it makes sense to you guys. He created Adam, and then he took woman out of Adam. Okay, So in a sense, God took what we know to be femininity out of Adam. When Adam was originally created, he was the full embodiment of God's characteristics in human form, both masculine and feminine. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of projecting that. I don't, it doesn't specifically say that, but I know it says that woman came out of man. So something happened there. Um, but for what purpose? To bring it back together again in sexual union, right? So why, why? Just so we could have sex? No, it's a picture of the union that we can have with God. Okay, if we think about it, Adam was created in the image of God. So 
God created woman out of the image of man. God wants us to have a union with him like he had with Adam. So what he did was he had woman so that man and woman can have a union. That's a picture of our oneness with Christ and um, our oneness with God through Christ. Are you tracking so far? Um, All throughout the Old Testament, we see God as the faithful husband and his people as the unfaithful wife. That's just one thing. In the New Testament, we see Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. We can talk about it all night. And I love, like I said, like we love humans. And we say like, I'm, I don't hate them. I just hate the sin and everything about them because they sin in that way. You know, like it, it really is a slippery slope. But to say that God created me this way is an attack on the image of God. To say that God created you to be something that is contrary to his revealed nature, how he's revealed himself to us. Because he's revealed himself to us as a husband, and we are his wife. He has revealed Christ to, a, to us as the bridegroom, and we are his bride. It, you can see why it's such a huge attack on Christians right now, because the enemy finds those things that can most defame God, and he attacks those things. We talked about it when we were in Ephesians. Why do you think sex is so rampant among church people? Because sex was something to create union or or is a type of the union and intimacy that we can have with God. So what better thing to attack and to have Christian men and women struggle with than sexual immorality or homosexuality? And we talked about it with alcohol. Alcohol in and of itself is not wrong, but what does the enemy do? Because the alcohol, uh, I'm sorry, because God wants us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and that is how we have union with God, and that's how we are one with God. He allows alcohol to be a cheap imitation of that. People get drunk and intoxicated by the Spirit and are under the influence of the that Spirit, low, lowercase s, and then the Holy Spirit cannot do its work. So you see, it's not... It's not because I want to be, I want it to be a man and woman because it looks better on the cake with the little figures. Which is, I feel like sometimes the arguments get so based like that and it's so pointless. We have to look at it. It's like, what does God say and why does God say it? Not just, well, it says it. God says everything for a purpose. And it's because it's a type from the beginning that God would want a man and a woman. You see? So, and it's not just because it, it works. It's because it was his way of showing the union of his people with him. So if you go with if you end up with a man and a man or a woman and a woman, it, it defrauds that union the way that God intended it to be. So you can throw eggs at me or whatever. That's what I think the Bible says and I think you would agree. Um, if you read it. Uh, Romans read Romans one eighteen through thirty two. It talks about this very clearly. It says they didn't they failed, they knew who God was and they chose not to acknowledge him as God. And because of that repeated rejection of God, God gave them over to do whatever they wanted. And the end point was men exchanging the use of a woman for a man, women exchanging the use of a man for a woman for a man, or a man for a woman. So that's where we see Sodom and Gomorrah. So let's go. uh, If you guys don't mind, we'll just finish up. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, so they clarify that, they were betrothed to his daughters because his daughters were virgins. Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. And look at this. 
But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. They're like, ha Lot, you're always a kidder. What does that say about Lot's testimony? We already saw that he was willing to give up his daughters to these guys. And now he's saying, God's going to judge this place. And they're like, ha good one. Well, how is Lot living? But what's interesting and encouraging, I think, is that in the eyes of God, Lot was righteous. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. And turning to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them to an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. And on in verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, I'm sorry. Did we skip one? Oh, there we go. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So he's saying Lot was righteous and he tormented his soul for the sin that was going on there. That's crazy. We don't see that here. But that's divine inspiration of the scriptures. So Lot, maybe he gets a bad rap sometimes. Maybe he was working his way up through that city to make a change, to try to change it from the inside out. But we have to be careful because how much of that city was creeping into Lot's life. And we see this, it's a, you know, about how he's saying, we can't, uh, as you move, let's move on, sorry. But he lingered, so the men seized him and his wife. Oh, I skipped. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. They brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. We don't have time to get into that, why he's so weird about this and this little city that he cares so much about, but you can look up that for yourselves. He said to them, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overflow, not, not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. I think this is a foreshadowing or a type of the rapture of the church. God, like I said before, he's not going to judge the wickedness with the righteous still there. He's going to get us out. It seems, we saw it with Noah and his eight, you know, the eight with Noah. Um, we see it here. God wants to rescue the righteous out from among the wicked. I think that's pretty cool. Uh, it says, therefore the name of the city was called Zoar, which literally means little. So he's like, I want to go to this little town. So let's read on. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. So there's no evidence of it. That's why they can't find it. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. What? That's crazy. We'll talk about that in a second. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Abraham doesn't know at this point if Lot's gotten out. Can you imagine what he's going through? So it was that when, Abraham, when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overflow, overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. God remembered how Abraham had interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's like, no, I've been faithful to you, Abraham, my friend. Lot is good. He's safe. 
Now, I'm just going to read through this next section. It's really weird, but I just want to finish. Sorry. Now, Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar, even though he wanted to go there. Weird, I know. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they think, no men will have us because we were already married, and we're stuck here in a cave. We're the last people on earth, essentially. That's, that's their frame mind. Everything they've known has been destroyed. And they're like, well, I guess we have to have a child, and dad's the only guy. It's really weird and awful, and I don't even want to talk about it, but it's here. Um, so they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down and when she arose. So Lot is, you know, they, they, the scripture holds him blameless for this because they got him so drunk. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. So the, the next one goes in, the younger daughter goes in and does the same thing, and they both become pregnant. In verse 37, the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. And you're like, why is this happening? <laughs> why did that have to end there? I don't know. Their desperation was real. In that, in that culture, it was important. The lineage was an important thing to carry on. But just to finish, and I, you know, I apologize that we've gone long tonight, um, but we get really uncomfortable when we see this wrath of God stuff, right? We don't talk about it in church that much. Or if we do, it's like, the wrath of God is upon you and you're going to die and you got to turn and burn. Our sin separates us from God. Our sin is the result of our free will to choose whether to accept or reject God. Jesus became the sin of the world on the cross. Something that God had orchestrated from the beginning of the from the foundation of the world. From Adam's bite of forbidden fruit to the atrocities of the Holocaust to the molestation of thousands of children by so-called men of God, even the vilest of things in our own hearts that we may never act out, all of it was placed on Christ and judged. God's wrath is necessary so that sin can be judged and sinners made righteous. It was God's wrath that punished our sin apart from us on the cross in the body of his son so that we can inherit the kingdom of God. So when we look at this, we're like, why is God so angry? (laughs) But you know what? For you parents out there, if someone were to be luring your child into something, if someone were to be trying to harm your wife or your husband, I know if somebody mistreats my wife in any way, even if it's just like they were discourteous to her, I'm like, where are they? I will slaughter them like a pig. You know, like, there's this righteous indignation that rises up in me. We're like, oh, no. Or can you imagine, like, someone, I come home to find someone trying to break into my house, and they have, like, one of my kids by their arm. God, help me. You know, like, that guy would be a puddle of blood. And I'm sorry to say it, that is in me. And that's in all of us, I think. But to protect the ones that I love, I would do anything. God loves us. Without love, without wrath, there is no genuine love. Do you guys understand that? If my son was being beaten to a pulp and I was saying, oh, I'm sorry, I love you so much. Hope you get through this. No, sorry that's happening to you. I'll give you a big hug when it's all over. What? That's not love. That's indifference and apathy to this, the plight that my son is in. Just like the plight that we were in under the penalty of sin. The wrath of God a 
abode on us. It, it was literally, the world was condemned as soon as Adam bit that fruit. Jesus said, I did not come to condemn the world. I came to save it. So, without the preaching of God's wrath towards sin, you can't have the genuine love of God. Because in that analogy, we often say, Jesus took my place on the cross, and we we kind of think of Jesus becoming a sinner. No. Jesus became the very thing that was destroying his people so that he could absorb the wrath of God. You understand what I mean? In that analogy, like say someone's beating my son. Sometimes I think what we say is, I then, as the father, become the son taking the beating. You know what I mean? As though sin is winning. No, sin lost. Because if you can imagine, Jesus became the guy doing the beating. He became the sin, the very sinful act that was happening. Jesus became that so then God could unleash everything on it and destroy sin forever so that we don't have to bear the penalty of our sin anymore if we put our faith in Jesus. Does that make sense? You see the difference there? It's subtle, but it's important to notice because I think sometimes we see Jesus on the cross as a loser or as a victim. He is not. He is a victor. And he, the wrath of God was satisfied. We sang it earlier tonight in Jesus' death on the cross. It's so important that we realize that. That is why God has wrath. John Piper says, The wisdom of God has ordained a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. Only John Piper can say it that way. I don't know. Yeah, I'm like, uh, it makes sense, kind of. Uh. You know. How did he do this? Check this out. We'll just finish with these verses. Matthew, if we have the PowerPoint, I kind of... We talked about the circumcision and the covenant, and I... Sorry, guys, again, that it's so long. Um, Jesus said in Matthew 26, 27, 28... He took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So you see, we're talking about the covenant again, just like we did in chapter 17. We partake in the body and blood of Christ, which was given for the remission of sins. Without Jesus' sacrifice, we'd be given the cup of God's wrath to drink, like Sodom and Gomorrah. But he gave us the cup of the new covenant, and he took the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. Check it out, Matthew 26, 39, just a few verses later. He went on a little further and fell on his face saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then further on in verse 30, 42, he goes on. He comes back to God a second time and says, If this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And then in John eighteen eleven, Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath when Peter tried to cut off the guy's ear or did. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? What cup is he talking about? In Revelation, it talks about the cup of God's wrath that's going to be poured out on all of sin and all of the wickedness. He took that cup willingly for us so that we don't have to suffer the same fate as Sodom and Gomorrah. Isn't that an amazing thing? The final verse is 1 Thessalonians 5.9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for how deep it is and how we cannot even begin to tap into it, Lord. It's amazing. I pray that you bless our time of fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.